Welcome to the Oda Magazine podcast series. We at Oda wanted to give you the opportunity to dive even deeper into the worlds of the people we get to spend time with. By creating podcasts featuring conversations with creatives and entrepreneurs in all different areas of artistry. From designers, curators, and actors to philanthropists, models, singers, and photographers. The one through line for each of the podcasts in this series is that they highlight the work of individuals from around the world who participate in and nourish culture and the conversations they inspire. Our guests discuss how they see the future, hopefully one filled with diversity, equality, understanding, and of course, passion. ODA is a platform where self-expression, imagination, and dreams are brought to the next level and shared with those looking to be inspired. Cyril Goodshay is the visionary founder of the company Parlay for the Oceans, an organization dedicated to leveraging a community of creators, innovators, and decision makers to help raise awareness about the fragile state of the world's oceans. Cyril is using his network of big thinkers to come up with and implement outside-the-box strategies that have a single goal, saving the seas. Ian Urbina, the prize-winning investigative journalist, has spent years on the high seas reporting on the lawlessness that exists offshore. That experience resulted in the book, The Outlaw Ocean, which was recently purchased by Netflix and Leonardo DiCaprio. Both men are drawn to the big blue as a place of beauty, danger, loneliness, and freedom. But most of all, its critical role in the future of humanity on this planet. This conversation was curated by Oda Executive Editor, Jessica Michaud. Ian, do you remember the moment you came back from that investigation and landed in the Maldives? You were quite exhausted. What happened back there? Uh, this crazy German guy I knew uh, started texting me when I barely made it with my photographer out of Somalia. Um, we had gotten in a really awful bind and were trapped in Puntland and um, barely got out. And on the way back <clears throat> to the UAE on the flight, um, I got a text from this guy named Cyril, who was like, hey, I need you in the Maldives. And I'm like, I don't even know where the Maldives are. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I was pretty fried. Um, and and it was quite a contrast to go from Mogadishu to um, the, the gorgeous place where um, you guys were soon to be uh, setting up um, a parlay uh, center. Are you avoiding danger or are you actually seeking danger? Are you like a like a junkie that really needs this thrill and you just want to hang out with the worst people on the planet or is it like or can't you just avoid it yeah no i don't i don't seek it i'm not um i, I respect those who get addicted you know like war correspondents to the adrenaline rush of of uh that kind of reporting but um i don't crave that um i do crave um uh and i'm addicted to um stories that feel super urgent, you know, and stories that allow me to go places that I think most people don't go or even know exist. Th those are the sorts of um, reporting experiences that make me feel most alive. Um, and it's and not just the voyeurism of it, but also the sense that by seeing and accessing that place, I might actually do some good. That's addictive. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the core engine of um, the reporting I'm doing now these days, because a lot of those places are out at sea. So you described moments where you were like in the midst of the ocean on a boat that is like a floating like weapon arsenal, like a place where you can pretty much get any dangerous toy. 
and you described that they were not really anxious about your porting. Actually, they found it interesting that you're there and you were like, give them a platform or they opened up to you about things that they are actually really mind-blowingly bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's clear you've read the book closely. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of these places have, it's a common question that I get, um, why would these people tell you this stuff? You know, And the answer is what you just touched on, whether it's a floating arms depot or you know, private security guards wait between deployments at sea uh, and weapons are stored or you know, a trafficking haven in, in, on the Myanmar border um, or, um, you know, a, a captain of a Thai vessel that's got trafficked, you know, 13-year-old Cambodian boys working for him. Like, um, the, invariably, people I find are willing to talk to me if they, um, if they can be convinced that I'll do right by them. Not that I will pull my punches or not ask tough questions, but that I'm very transparent in my outlook and my plans. Um, and, uh, and then also just time. Like um, if, if I go in too fast, um, people clam up. But if I just hang around for a while and um, show a certain level of respect and fluency for their world, um, usually people just start talking. The oceans are for some this like symbol displays this idea of the ultimate peaceful like setting right we connect remote beaches with the ultimate holiday and on the other hand it's one of the most violent places on earth uh it's the it's pretty much like this no law outlaw area and that's why also you you called your series the outlaw ocean which then led to a full project to pretty much your your existence um, can you describe that space, the outlaw ocean, this like space without laws that you experience that is in stark contrast with how people would see the sea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, um, I don't mean to undermine the first part of what you said, because it's no less true um, in context of my reporting. So it is a fact that the ocean is this um, existentially gorgeous place. You know, it's um, mind-bogglingly big and powerful, and things are radically different there. Physics and your sense of time, and social hierarchies, and 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 the way light casts, and you know, um, the way the air feels, and the speed of the winds, and the kind of creatures you encounter. All of those things are beautifully different, and. Um, and just the sheer, you know, through literature, through philosophy, through law, um, you see in history how the ocean was a, always a place that people went to get away from landed life, get away from crowded other people and government imposition and, and open their sort of horizons. Sometimes they went out there to, um, you know, on a mission, you know, um, to catch the whale or to... Um, to sort of see the edge of the world. Um, uh, but so, so all those things are still certainly true, but um, because it's that and always has been that and has been culturally and legally protected as that, it is this extra legal space. It, it is, especially the high seas, um, codified as um, 
distinct, like the atmosphere or, or in Antarctica, you know, the, these are global commons out of space that really don't belong to anyone um, and they belong to all of us. And um, also just because of the reality of the geography, they're so expansive. Even if you did want to make it belong to someone, good luck enforcing that, you know, it's, so for all of those reasons, um, the extra legal, legal nature of it means that um, while I don't think violence happens more often there than in, you know, Damascus or Caracas or, you know, um, Mogadishu or South Central LA, um, uh, um, I do think the violence that occurs out there or the extra legality that occurs out there more often occurs with impunity. Like you can do whatever you want and get away with it way easier than on land, whether that's illegal fishing or dumping oil or plastic or murder or trafficking people. Um, there's no one out there that's gonna stop you. So um, most people are good and they're not engaged in bad behavior, but those who are engaged in bad can do it without real worry. Technically, it would be possible to pretty much see everything what is happening on the sea. There's no blind spot anymore, right? Um, there are listening devices, there are probes, there are uh, satellites, there's all kind of um, technology out there which allows total reconnaissance. Where do you think is that lack? Uh, where's the, the lack of uh, motivation for governments who are listening in, who, is, who are watching to interfere with crimes on the high sea? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you're, you're quite right. You know, um, the technology is there um, uh, to see everything out there. Um, right now, mostly that satellite technology and it's visually based, but there's also other methods of monitoring that space as you cited. Um, it's still fairly expensive. So not expensive for Germany or the US, you know, not for the developed North, but for most of the planet, the global South, it's completely out of reach for governments or NGOs or average citizens or companies in those places to afford that level of monitoring because, but that could change too, you know, if, if there was collective will to put more satellites up there and make the ones that are up there more affordable. Um, what's lacking is um, the centralized will. I mean, you embedded the answer in your question. Um, uh, the nature of politics, the nature of governments, the turnover rate of governments, you know, it's a new guy or woman every whatever years. Um, so the institutional memory rolls over. The, the fact that the ocean, except for, you know, in the form of organizations like Parlay, lacks a lobby, you know, um, uh, and the people, the, the fish and the fishers, you know, the people working the waters um, generally lack lawyers and journalists and, and um, organizations that give them voice and represent their interests. Um, and the opposing side, those who want to sort of mine the oceans and uh, industrialize, industrially extract from the oceans um, have a lot of motivation and there are many of them. Um, so I think like all of those things put barriers to um, governments wanting to monitor the oceans, um, even though the technology is there. And some governments even try to control the oceans, right? With different uh, ambitions or also different um, ways of doing it. Um, the Chinese fleet, um, I learned, is often, I mean, if that's correct or not, I'm not sure, is often like run by even militia or actually protected by mm -hmm. government forces. They don't appear that way, but it's quite organized, right? There are millions of boats going out and 
there are so many attempts to kind of protect territories. It's a strategic war in a way, I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Chinese fleet globally is a really interesting um, thing. Um, the Chinese have more boats than anyone and they have for the past decade had a more um, decided policy of trying to expand. They're, and again, let's be clear here, you know, the US, Germany, you know, all, all of these nations went through the very same imperial agenda. You know, we were engaged in uh, um, then and still the very same behavior that we're now seeing from China. But th China is just playing catch up and is attempting to become an imperial power and it's quite succeeding. And one of the arms of that agenda is to really expand its maritime presence, both its military and merchant presence, so cargo ships, its oil and gas drilling presence, and its fishing fleet presence. The fishing portion is the biggest, um, the most ships, um, the distant water fleet is, you know, to the tune of three to 7,000 ships. They go as far away as Bangladesh and Somalia. And they play the role of, A, trying to um, grab more fish for the sake of um, selling it internationally, but also feeding their booming population. Um, uh, but also laying what, what in the Israel-Palestine conflict is often called facts on the ground. Like, they're establishing realities if they can't win at the diplomatic level, then they'll make it a reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground is if the boats are there, well, then they're running it. You know, possession is three quarters, quarters of the law. And so in the South China Sea near Thailand, for example, the Spratly Islands, the Chinese fishing fleet, those boats don't fish. They're fishing boats, but they don't fish. They're there to establish that the Chinese have a historical presence in the region. So that then when they, the Chinese government starts building an island like they did with the Spratleys in the middle of the ocean and starts laying claim to those waters so they can drill and you know, and, and control merchant flow, um, they can say, hey, our fishing boats have been here for a decade. Um, so that's part of the overall agenda um, of what's going on with the Chinese. How many fishing vessels are out there, legal and illegal? Wow. Um, Legal and illegal. I'll go with legal first, and, and there are over 10 million um, fishing vessels globally. Um, I think illegal would double that number um, because so many of the vessels, you know, China, Taiwan, um, South Korea often engage in um, registering one vessel, but there being 10 vessels that have the exact same name. So, um, uh, and, and they can just sort of swap them out or they're all on the water at the same time. And I opened the conference in uh, South Korea about the ocean and they only spoke about how to exploit the sea. And I suggested that they should give the sea a break and just like stop, you know, taking lives. Um, I expected that they throw me out of the room, but actually they applauded. I mean, I was sitting down the defense minister um, uh, whispered to me and he said, Oh, we know that there's not so much fish out there anymore. Our vessels coming back empty. Mm -hmm. So there is a hard reality out there that there are more hunters. There are more, and there's this like extremely developed technology and fish and animals out there um, nearly have a hiding ground, right? It's like mm -hmm. too perfect now. We are like this super uber predator. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see the, the state of the oceans? I mean, how is the situation with life out there in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, um, if you look at the arc, the historical arc of fishing in the last, say, three, four decades, it's moved from um, 
uh, almost from hunting to agriculture, you know, like um, because of the advances in technology. Um, so whereas in the old days, it was an art as much as a science and a, a good fishing boat captain had to have all sorts of specialized wisdom about the best and often secretive fishing grounds and where the fish move and at what rate and you know how to tie certain nets in certain ways. So um, now the, the key advances have been engines have gotten way better in their efficiency so they can use less fuel and travel longer. Cold storage, so refrigeration means you can keep the fish um, frozen for much longer at sea and you can stay out longer. Um, filament strength, so the, the and you know a lot about this because you're in this market, you're trying to shift um, consumer um, buying away from, um, well, trying to redirect plastic into um, usable filament for shoes or nets. Or, but the, the, the filament strength of nets has gone up so much that they don't break as easily now and they can be 10 times larger. Um, that means the nets are more, they're like, they're more durable. They're more durable. They're like unforgiving. You can't, they don't break. You can't escape them. And you can build them, you know, you know, to be a mile across, a, you know, a pair of trawlers, two, two Chinese vessels, you know, a, a half a mile apart from each other with a wall of mesh between them. You know, you need a filament that can really handle a lot of weight and tension because as the fish accumulate, um, that's incredible pressure. And it was only in the last three, four decades that, you know, we, we developed nylon, you know, um, that could handle that. Um, so these sorts of things, cold storage, and then also the, the, the sort of um, sat, the sonar and satellite technology mean that um, there's no mystery as to where the fish are. You know, the, the captains just look on one of their many monitors and they can see everything. It's like the, the ocean top has become a glass top table and they can see with technology everything below. So all those things mean that industrial commercialized fishing has become dangerously efficient, unsustainably efficient. And, um, you know, that coupled with the way the world globalized market, you know, has emerged um, luxury items like shrimp, you know, or salmon even, lobster now can be bought any time in the year, you know, from anywhere in the world and it can arrive a week later. That wasn't always the case. So all those things together have meant the, the extraction occurring um, is just way outpacing the replenishment. And that's why we're seeing fish stocks, you know, collapse everywhere. I'd love to hear, and we'll go back and tell the origin story, but, you know, update me on the status of this amazing thing you're doing in the Maldives, your relationship with the government, and also just sort of the creation of this special place there. Tell me what Parlay is doing. Yeah, the last year actually was very interesting for us because, um, yeah, as you know, we, we started working with the Maldives five years ago, and it was the first government that signed a membership agreement with Parlay. Uh, the president himself came um, and to New York and, and we announced together, and you were there actually, uh, we announced together that we're gonna turn the Maldives into a future island nation. And the idea was the strategy is to um, cut down the use of fossil fuels um, to actually contribute um, to the battle against climate change that like a country like the Maldives with all these islands and nearly no elevation is extremely exposed to. Uh, they're pretty much the canary in the coal mine. They're the first one to be hit. Um, if sea level rises, um, the global uh, coral bleaching event destroyed in, in 2016, um, pretty much all the coral reefs. Um, so the damage is, is obvious. 
Um, and the president then also, besides the, the, the aspect of like fossil fuel burning, um, committed to fight heavily and become a champion in that in fighting plastic, plastic, marine plastic pollution, where his country is like, like really oversaturated with trash. I mean, you find debris everywhere there um, on the seabed. It's coming in from the outside. It's coming in from um, other countries in South, South Asia and the Indian Ocean but it also um, is, is created domestically um, with a very high, um, I would say, quantity or volume of single-use disposal plastic items like plastic bottles or um, packaging in general for food, uh, wrappers, even like utensils, plates and all these things. So we agreed on a very aggressive agenda and um, they're doing, they're moving forward quite well. I mean, we consult them uh, on, on how to change laws. Uh, we work with the local um, industry, we work with the tourism industry as well, and lots of other governmental uh, offices, administrations there, um, to really make the country a role model. And it's rough, even it's a small country, you know, you only have 500,000 people living there and like around a million are, are coming in every year and not now during COVID-19, but under normal circumstances. Um, and still it's rough to change a country fast, you know, but that's pretty much what we have in mind. We want to tackle the problems of like marine plastic pollution, but then also at some point climate change and um, illegal fishing. We want to help to tackle these problems in an extremely strategic way at scale. And delivering end-to-end -end solutions is, is our vision. And what was remarkable is that in um, 2020, in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, um, we were able to secure an agreement with World Bank so World Bank is now a Palais partner. And what they did is they endorsed our strategy, uh, Palais Air, uh, avoid, intercept, and redesign. These three pillars um, to fight marine plastic pollution. And together we um, declared pretty much, I don't want to say a war, but yes, um, to marine plastic pollution in South Asia with uh, 10 countries um, being on board. Um, and that's a big milestone for us. It's like a, suddenly we are, we are able to think globally. We are able to talk to people that can actually change the faith of a country. Mm -hmm. And we have access to funding in, in a total different dimension. Um, that's new. It comes with a total new challenge though, you know, of like <laughs> navigating through that new form of an administration. Uh, work or administrative work um, that we're not so used to. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, um, <clears throat> that is super inspiring and is uh, parlay engaging with one category of stakeholder globally, which is governments. Pivot for a second and talk to me about um, when you do similar engagement with corporate players like Adidas and specifically um, your work on um, really investigating and improving and innovating um, supply chains within companies. Uh, just tell me a little bit about that front of your work. So all the environmental issues we're facing today, they're caused by economy. It's business really that is uh, creating these problems. And when you're narrowing it down, then it's the materials um, the industry uses, uh, the production methods, um, the way they think product and the way they feel responsible or not responsible. Um, for a product or for the things they put out. And when, you're, when you want to drive change in rapid speed, 
then you have to approach it in a systematic way. And our approach is to go for what we call epicenters. And that means we pick out of every industry, um, we pick a potential champion and we turn them around. And then the, the rest of the industry has to follow because otherwise they are losing competitive advantage. Even if they don't understand why they should help, and even if they don't care for the animals out there and not for the future of their kids, um, they have to because otherwise they're being outperformed. And that's exactly what we needed to prove. And Adidas was that proof of concept. And it took a moment, you know, I mean, it took us two years to negotiate a contract with Adidas um, and we signed it in 2015. And um, end of last year marked the first five years of our partnership. And, and suddenly you see a, a brand that becomes an, a corporate activist that had carried um, ending plastic as their tagline, as their campaign, as their main campaign, where Palais became their main strategic partner. And the cause of fighting plastic and the plastic crisis suddenly was embedded in the business model. And that is new. You know, suddenly brands stand up and they don't, don't just give a donation, but they say, okay, we could be actually part of a new economy where purpose is the core of our DNA. And that has not happened before, um, unless with like small, very small brands like Patagonia or somebody, you know, but in this large scale, it hasn't happened before. And, and we see that this caused a drastic shift in how other company leaders, but especially shareholders, look at their entities. So what happened in the last uh, five years with that example of Adidas is that the conversation really... Uh, went towards what is the true footprint of my organization and what's the negative footprint and what is the impact that we could have? What could be the positive that my organization actually could achieve? And that's what we need. Mm -hmm. We need to establish a new economy, a new business standard, a new idea of why we're doing business. And we have to also kind of establish a new criteria for quality and for success. Do you think that the, I want to say this to both of you, because I want to reflect what's been going on in this new last year, you know, with the pandemic, when you talk about reflecting in new things, how the two of you, do you feel that that's really going to shift now with this last year? Do you think people have learned? I mean, what do you both feel about that? Uh, I don't, please ask that question again. I don't follow. What do we feel about what COVID and its impact on climate change? I think that yeah, are people, when you talk about brands having a purpose, having it built in from the beginning of, you know, the DNA or the, the images of wildlife running in the streets of London or the seas, you know, all of a sudden the, the seas that were polluted are now, you know, clean because there's nobody and there aren't any fishing boats out. And I mean, this, this last year, do you think has been a wake up call or do you think people are going to head back to, you know, life as usual as soon as they possibly can? I'm just curious to, you know, you guys who are on the front lines, what you think about that? I mean, my answer um, may be niched. I mean, I've seen a couple of things um, that feel like major cultural intellectual shifts come out of COVID. One is from a work perspective. I think that we've all been forced to um, telecommute, you know, and, and, um, um, and realize that it is possible to travel less uh, and, and, and also think a little bit more about the wasted time um, in engaging in certain work formalities um, 
Uh, and I think a lot of employers and employees around the world are probably not going to go back to um, uh, um, certain work habits. And, and so I think that has a positive climate change effect because businessmen and journalists and folks won't be getting on planes unless they need to, uh, or getting in cars and stuff like that. Um, uh, and I think, um, I think also, I mean, just uh, since I work a lot on um, human rights, labor and environmental abuses in, out at sea, and one of the core common denominators um, of all those crimes is a sense of remove, a sense of isolation, sort of a distance. I think we all have experienced through COVID this sense of remove, distance, isolation, solitary confinement. And we now have a keener sense of what it feels like to be cut off from each other. And I think um, as I talk with people about the experience of seafarers and being abandoned at sea or what have you, or just the experience of being at sea, people can relate more. So those are two small ways in which I've noticed a difference. Yeah, and what I see is um, that people actually get aware that they love, the, that love nature and that they didn't really show enough respect in the past, very individual. And they are starving, they're craving um, nature now. They're like, they, they want to see themselves back out there, you know? And so something that had been granted for a very long period of time is such something special because we are confined. And right now it's really um, only for some people that are very privileged that they can fly with their private jet somewhere or with the yachts, you know, but everybody else is, has a hard time or takes a high risk um, to go out there. And in some countries it's not even possible. You know, in some countries you get stopped when you're on the way to the beach and they turn you around and send you home. So what I see is that people appreciate the natural world more and they are consuming content about the natural world. Like David Atbor was probably never as attractive as now, you know? And on the other hand, um, some people also, if they um, think a little further, they associate COVID-19 with that situation. They feel like, mm, probably we caused that probably pushed nature to the wall and um, now something jumped over to us, you know? So these questions are out there. And when I look at the industry, then I see way more interest and honestly, way more sincere interest yeah. to become part of Palais. They, uh, the conversations are very different. I think that in general, the, the environmental movement um, had already before the, 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 the pandemic, a lot of traction, but people know that after the pandemic, it will be in the foreground because what we all learned is that we are seeking for purpose and we want to be, we want authenticity and we want people surrounding us that are responsible. We want to support brands that have, stand for a cause or are doing things in a different way. We don't want to waste our time anymore with like superficial uh, emptiness. Yeah. And I think that all drives our movement and expedites it. I mean, the, when you talk about expedite, I mean, the, the doomsday clock is like, what, 100 seconds to midnight? Uh, it, it's like, and I look at your website for Parley and, and things like 2004, you know, 2048 is the, you know, the deadline for the collapse of all commercial fishery, 2025, that the coral reef, you know, ecosystem is kaput. Um, you know, we have to get this, you know, turn this around in the next, you know, six to 16 years, both of you guys are, are working on subjects that are so 
hard and, and, and look like there's no easy solution. There is no easy solution. So how do you think we can, yeah. how do you stay motivated knowing, you know, what, what's it, what you're facing? So there some, you, you bundled some questions together there. Um, the first one is the deadline. When we started Palais, we were working towards 2048 because that was the, I would say, deadline that was defined by Boris Warren and um, Ben Hepburn in this um, report that they did on fisheries um, for the United Nations. And that report was done in 2006 and it was only based on, um, I think, regulated fishing. Uh, there are way more threats toward the oceans and there are way more threats towards the climate, to life on this planet, really, to, to the natural world. And with that also to our own, um, I would say, life support system. And at Palais, we align with scientists and also intergovernment organizations like the United Nations um, on a different and a new deadline. And that's 2030, 2030. So that means the next nine years are crucial in turning things around. And, and that's harsh and it's difficult, it's tough and we will fail. Um, but we can't fail for too far, you know, because if you're looking at carbon emissions, for example, um, even if we stop today um, emitting a carbon dioxide, methane gas, um, we will see still an increase in the next 10 years because it takes a moment until all these emissions are in the atmosphere. Um, and there's already now a big debt, you know, there are 2000 gigatons of carbon dioxide up there, which don't belong there. Mm. Um, when you're looking at plastic pollution, um, free already, I mean, plasticize the whole planet. Plastic is in rain and snow in our drinking water, even in bottled water. Um, plastic is in the air we breathe, I in the food we eat. Just you know? Didn't they just announce that they found the first plastic particles inside the womb of a of a, an unborn child? Like it's that that this is this new, so that it's just permeating, yep. you know. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yes, and can imagine plastic is causing illnesses, sicknesses, and defects. You know, and they also are working on proving that plastic can actually cross the the brain blood barrier. I mean, there is this these chemicals that we created, these materials that we put out there. They're toxic, they're harmful, and they're not only harming the environment, they're harming ourselves and they're threatening our future. And therefore, at Palais, we, we speak about a material revolution that has to happen. We have to let go of these materials rapidly fast and we have to stop the killing. Um, we can't go out there and you just heard about 10, probably 20 million fishing vessels, yeah. um, vacuum cleaning our seas. I mean, this is heading towards the wall. And the interesting thing is that um, Government leaders now know that the environment became one of the biggest security threats for sovereign states. I mean, the one thing I would add, though, is that if the last four years showed us anything, especially in the U.S. with the last administration, but just globally, um, and I think that the next, you know, two years or at least one year will show this more. It's that radical global action is possible. I mean, um, I don't think that two years ago, if you had said could you stop the world economy and force everyone to wear masks or most people to wear masks in the course of 30, 60 days? Anyone would have ever said yes, could, you know, and um, yet the pandemic has happened and incredible things, some of them bad, some of them inspiring are occurring. And I think we're going to see an acceleration of that with the new administration and with new sort of international cooperation and with the presence of vaccines. So I think generally the global public is more aware of 
the possibility of doing pretty radical things if the stakes are high enough. It was kind of a drill. I mean, we faced a global crisis, a global event um, that pretty much everybody on this planet experiences and confronts in the same way and nobody can hide from it. And you can't buy yourself out of it. And suddenly um, we learn, as, as you just said, Ian, that we can respond to that. Yeah, We can put trillions of millions of dollars out and uh, we can stop flights and restrict things that before were unthinkable. And that should inspire us and actually enable us to do the same with the way bigger crisis that we are being confronted right now. And that's the um, collapse of the natural world, which ultimately will mean the collapse of our own species because we humans, we are not per se designed to live on a dead planet. Um, we need there's like chemistry to be as it is. And even like small changes are creating a very big discomfort until like serious threat and can even drive us into extinction. Yeah, yeah. So, so that it's interesting what you both say because it's, you've, we've proven through the pandemic that we can make drastic fundamental changes almost overnight, no more flights, you know, wearing masks. Um, so we can work as nations or, or as humans, um, but it's also, you know, very, very daunting. What are the, what are the, the little things besides the wearing the mask? Like, what are the day-to-day -day things that individuals like myself can do to, you know, pay it forward, do our part? Optimism. I think it's all about being optimistic. It's all about being creative. It's like not being overwhelmed and, and scared and to let go of fear, you know, to allow possibility. I think that's the first thing everybody can do, you know, and try to allow the new and, um, and be open to it and, and support. Because with fear, we won't succeed. You know, the only way that I see is um, if we move out of this um, by accepting the challenge and answering with creativity, collaboration, uh, ingenuity, yeah, new technology, and, and supporting alternatives, even if they're not perfect at the moment support people that stand up and speak out and also do the same yourself every day, you know, like the little things like, hey, avoid uh, plastic, avoid eating too much uh, meat, or probably even avoid eating meat. <laughs> like just, I would say, cut into this behavior that's brought us here and that was so over commercialized. And that is like a very wasteful um, lifestyle that pretends that resources are endless. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would add that, you know, it's important to, when you ask what to do first step back and think, okay, well, what am I? I'm a taxpayer. I'm a voter. I'm a, I'm a, you know, sibling. I'm a parent. I'm a partner. You know, I'm a, um, a donor. I'm a consumer, right? You, you, we all wear many different hats. And in each of those costumes, you know, um, uh, you have a role to play. And it doesn't have to be grandiose, but a conversation with your 17-year-old son or your spouse, um, uh, you know, um, a, a check to an organization that you you think does good work, um, 10 extra minutes to see where that lawmaker um, is on on certain issues you care about, and have that affect your vote. You know, all all of these things are small ways that we can more proactively and and again, consuming and consumption habits. Um, what, you, what you wear, what you eat, hugely relevant. Um, so I think if you just try to 
think of yourself in those different capacities and try to push yourself a little bit in each of them, it, it adds up. Yeah, and in your professional and in your personal uh, role. And um, each of us, and as Ian just said, I mean, each of us, um, we have different like instruments, and different abilities, different skills, different networks, and use them. You know, use them and, and pick your battle, get, learn something about a specific cause um, and focus on that and try to educate yourself and your, and your network. I think that's, that's the beginning of it, you know, and it can start as simple as the rejecting and avoiding uh, single use plastic items and uh, limiting the consumption of, of stuff in general, you know, and that's, I think that's something beautiful, what um, this crisis teaches us. It's like, we don't need all these things. I mean, who will see it anyway? You know, I mean, right now you don't need the wardrobe full of stuff. You know, you don't need the next, you don't need to show off on the street because nobody's watching, you know? I mean, it's actually extremely, it can be extremely relaxed um, to live on this planet. Mm -hmm. Let me just wrap this up by circling back to that, the kind of question when you mentioned Cyril about pick your battle, pick your, what you're going to focus your energy on and really, you know, drill down and, and learn about it and learn how you can, you know, make an impact through that, um, your choice of, of um, issue. What, to each of you, what was it that drew you Cyril to create, you know, Parlay? And then Ian, what, why did this become your focus of your journalistic career? What is it about the ocean? What is it about the water? Or what it is about that field that made you decide this is where I want to spend my life my energy, my years on the planet talking about this and focused on this. So you wanna go first? Okay. So as a designer, as a creative, as a strategist, um, you're sensitive to things, right? And for a very long time, I felt that there is no way that this planet is gonna survive us. It's just so ego, we are so selfish, we're just ego shooters. And I was very cynical about it. I felt like, of course, this planet will collapse. And then I met Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd and I learned that this is a very cowardish um, mindset really. And I felt probably I can use my skills, you know, probably um, the creative industries can contribute to solving these crises. And to be very frank, um, the most important thing I learned was that I have a role to play and to find my place in the movement. And also see that it can be extremely fulfilling to be part of a movement and that you don't have to fix these problems alone. You just contribute to something that is happening. And I feel that the creative industry, the, the designers, the artists, um, the scientists, um, we have an important role to play because all the environmental issues we are facing, they're based on economy and economy is based on technology, communication, um, design, you know. And it's all in our hands. Uh, so I think we, the creators, we, the creatives, we need to own the environmental movement and feel responsible for it instead of like pushing the responsibility away to people who run corporations, because technically we make it possible for them to make business. We invent the products they sell. Uh, we make them popular. You know, we create the technologies and seduce people to use them. So I think the most important thing is really the man in the mirror, really, um, to look at yourself and to see what can I influence and not feel overwhelmed by the challenge because you're not alone. But on the other hand, own your responsibility. And that is inspiring for others because we're coming from a time where it was not okay to admit that you are responsible, that you're also a part of the failure. 
And I think it's extremely sexy to own it. You know, I, I think leadership today is all about declaring ownership of problems and, and really addressing them hard. Mm. Um, I think that's what it is about. And I believe that the creators out there um, have the power to change um, the way people are thinking and to cultivate and spread ideas. Because when we know one thing, then everything what we can imagine as humans um, can happen. You know, mm. and now we have to imagine a happy end, like a life on this planet that is in peace, um, that is in harmony with nature and collaboration with nature, really. And I think we can design that idea together and, and push it and make it a reality. Yeah, I mean, um, my uh, interest in this realm was um, partially motivated, um, well, was, was entirely journalistic. Um, and more specifically as an investigative kind of long form narrative journalist, my mandate was to find things that are broken and that really deserve stark light cast on them, things that are urgent. Um, and um, th this realm had just so many um, compelling and urgent stories to be told that were um, so foreign um, to what we typically read. Um, so that drew me. Uh, and then um, the, the sense of the sort of public service value of these stories, uh, it's not just spectacle, um, this stuff matters. Um, and the intersectionality uh, of, I I'm very interested in human rights and labor as much as environment and indeed those various concerns all intersect in really interesting ways at sea. Um, and also finally, the, the sort of the, the, the marine space is truly the circula circulatory system of our global economy. Uh, and um, journalistically, it feels one of the most neglected systems of the body that is the, you know, the earth. Um, and so I thought um, it would be really good to focus on um, this realm uh, because it's so central to our survival uh, as an economy and as a, as a living thing. Don't want to miss an episode of the Oda podcast? All you have to do is download our app in the Apple Store or visit Oda's Spotify account. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends about the new Oda podcast.